This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. This is obviously not the way I thought that I'd be delivering this message today, but here we are, and uh, the Word of God will go forward. The preaching of the Word of God will go forward. And so we're going to continue on as we dive into Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And um, as you turn there in your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, whatever you got, uh, think about this. Why do baseball players wear pinstripes? I mean, it's definitely a thing, but why is it a thing? Uh, Well, a a lot of people think that they do that because when uh, uh, Babe Ruth was on the Yankees and he began to gain a little bit of weight, that they went to pinstripes because that would then kind of hide his weight. Uh, but doing a little research, she kind of discovered that they actually had pinstripes a couple of decades before um, Babe Ruth even. So it wasn't that. In fact, uh, I was able to uncover a New York Times article this week that talked about how the Yankees first went to pinstripes. And the article said that they were going to pinstripes because the Giants had been wearing pinstripes and they liked them. And actually, the Giants... Got that from, okay, Doug Connor, here it is. They got that from the Cubs, the Chicago Cubs. So the Chicago Cubs are actually the first ones to do it. And now baseball players do it. It's just a thing in the world of baseball. Uh, We often model ourselves after the originals. We often model ourselves after the originals. And that certainly happened with baseball. And today what we see in our text are the original witnesses. And our challenge is going to be to look at what they did here in this text and to put that on. And we've been talking ever since the beginning of this whole sermon series that certain elements of the book of Acts are going to be descriptive and certain elements are going to be prescriptive. And in this text, I think you have a little bit of both. So some things that are happening here are things that Luke is just describing what happened in the early church. But I think we can pull certain elements out to say these, again, are important things that all witnesses should be doing, which kind of brings us to the big idea of the day, which is let's live as witnesses of Jesus Christ. Let's live our lives as witnesses. And let's today take a look at this example we have in Acts chapter 2 and to learn from that. And uh, what I'm going to do is kind of put a sentence together for you. And I'm going to do that as I teach you four key elements of being a witness. So four key elements, but it's going to be in the form of a sentence as we go along. So here's the first part of the sentence and the first aspect of being a witness of Jesus Christ. And that is this, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm really gaining this from uh, the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. So let's look at this together, get your Bible in hand, and let's do this. Uh, Now, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the scripture gave them utterance. What is a massive amount of confusion when it comes to the Holy Spirit today? And I just want to start off this morning by saying that there are good men who love the word of God, who love Jesus Christ, who end up landing in different spots as it comes 
to how the Holy Spirit works and functions today. If I'm being super real about this, even the three guys that share the pulpit at Redemption Bible Church don't exactly see this the same way all the time. And so there, there's room. There's room for variance here. And I'm going to do my best to unpack what I believe is going on here and how that impacts it. Uh, I will say uh, that we all agree, uh, Pastor Adam, Pastor Drew, myself, we all agree wholeheartedly that the primary source of God's revelation today is in his completed word and we focus on that, and we land on that, and every week you come, and we unpack that. We believe God has revealed what we need to know. The word is sufficient. I think it's really, really clear, and that's what we focus on. And as we saw last week, I really think the early church did too in a lot of ways. You saw the word went forward, and the word went forward with power, and the word of God continued mightily. All those things were happening there early on in Acts, and all throughout the book of Acts. So we, we are word-centered here, but it's important to kind of get an understanding of what's going on. So let's consider the story a little bit here, the story. What exactly is happening here? Well, uh, there is a difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Both those words are used to describe a ministry of the Holy Spirit, baptism and filling. And I'm going to just show you the places where each of these are used to kind of get a better understanding of what's happening here and then what we should expect as normative for our day today. Uh, there are seven different verses, only seven, that mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit specifically, only seven. Four of those are the Gospels, and the Gospels all say something like this. This is actually from Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where, the, where it says this, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, this is John talking, John the Baptist, uh, the strap whose sandals I am now worthy to stoop down and untie. And John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, all four Gospels have something very similar to that. So those four of the verses. The fifth one is here, uh, in where Jesus says it himself. Jesus says in Acts 1.5, And Jesus baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then the, uh, the fifth mention, uh, or sixth mention of that, actually also occurs early on in Acts. So you have the baptism being predicted by the gospel writers. You have the baptism being predicted by Jesus. And unquestionably, this is what's happening in our text right now. They are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is the first time we see believers actually being baptized. Jesus predicted long before this that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would change uh, after he ascended, that he would send a helper, send a comforter. He promises that all throughout the Gospels. And in fact, uh, he also predicts there'd be a marked change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is from John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. It says this, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it, it neither uh, sees him nor knows him. Now watch this. You know him, for he dwells with you, but he will be in you. Right now, he's talking to his disciples that were around him, and he says, right now, the Holy Spirit is with you, but this coming a day, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, where he not only will be with you, but he's going to be in you. He's going to indwell you. Another a word we see used in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe for us today, that occurs 
when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I believe that because the last mention of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we haven't talked about yet is 1 Corinthians 12. Here's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So when did you become a part of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ? When did that happen? Well, the day you believed. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were immersed. Remember the word baptism, baptizo, means to immerse. And you were immersed into the body of Christ. And you were baptized in the Spirit at that point. Now, what we have in Acts is the first time this occurs. So Jesus had promised, he's with you, he's going to be in you. And here it is. They're at Pentecost this day, and I'll explain why I think Pentecost a little bit later, but they're, they're here, and and he's, the promised Holy Spirit has come, and he comes, and he indwells them. Make sense? Okay, well, all that being said, it gets a little tricky, and let me see why. Let's go to, back to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and look at verse number 4, because what does it say in verse number 4? It says, and they were all, uh-oh, not baptized, but filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, Pastor, you just said baptism. Now it's saying filling. Well, Jesus predicted the baptism, so it's for sure the baptism. But I think what's also happening is they're also being filled with the Spirit. So the Bible mentions baptism. The Bible mentions filling of the Spirit. And where baptism is only mentioned seven times, the filling of the Spirit, both in the Old and New Testament, is mentioned many, many, many times. Over and over again, uh, Disciples are said to be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit over and over again. So what in the world does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, um, finding a definition for that was kind of tough. I mean, I looked at Grudem, I looked at Piper, I looked at MacArthur, looked at several guys. Uh, I really do, though, appreciate probably the best, uh, and I think sums up really what all the other guys was trying to say, was Charles Ryrie. And Charles Ryrie said this, Spirit filling may be described as the extensive influence and control of the Spirit in a believer's life. Look at that again. Ex extensive influence and control of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Now, where baptism happens once, the day you were saved, the filling of the Holy Spirit happens multiple times. And how do you know that? Well, I know that because Peter is said to be filled with the Spirit over and over again. And Peter, filled with the Spirit. And filled with the Spirit, Peter said. And Paul, same thing. And Paul, being filled with the Spirit, lifted up his voice and said, and all throughout Acts, you're going to see over and over again, multiple mentionings of the filling of the Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit happens that day I was saved. I'm immersed into the body of Christ. And the filling of the Spirit can occur many, many times. Now, where at this instance, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and other instances, tongues is evident as part of that, um, the filling of the Holy Spirit Multiple times, no, no tongues happens at all. So yes, they are filled, but it doesn't even mention tongues. So tongues is not a necessarily an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean? How do we, as believers today, then experience the filling of the Holy Spirit? What exactly does that mean? Well, I want to um, point out to you a verse that's really interesting. And this is um, actually, this is the very first verse I ever preached. And uh, my uh, youth pastor gave me this text. And this was the first sermon I ever preached was Ephesians 5.18, believe it or not. It says this, And do not be drunk with wine, uh, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if he wanted me to preach that because he was you know, worried about me or something. But whatever the case, that's what I preached. 
But interesting how, do you notice how in our text, you're going to see they accuse the disciples of being drunk. And, and here it's, it compares again the um, drunkenness of alcohol with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and here's the idea. It's an idea of control. It's an idea of control. Uh, all the scholars I read, Piper, MacArthur, uh, Ryrie, all the guys that I was kind of reading in my study this week all mentioned the idea of control. Now, that may sound kind of spooky, but not when you really think about it. I mean, when someone is is drunk, I'm told, when someone is drunk, they lose control of themselves. And there are things they would never do normally because they're being controlled by the alcohol. And uh, when we yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit, there are things we, we might not do. And I thought that um, John MacArthur had a phenomenal illustration to kind of explain this. And he talked about scales and how we're constantly trying to find balance. So think about your life. I mean, when you're really sad or really happy, most of the times we keep our sadness and our happiness at some level of balance, right? And, uh, uh, and we try to keep that balance. So, so maybe you've had a, a rough day at work and you're like, man, okay, well, when I get home, I'm going to do such and such to help balance out that, that happiness. But you've probably experienced times in your life where either extreme sadness takes over or extreme joy takes over. And in either case, it seems like either the sadness is kind of in control or the joy is in control. And you find yourself doing things you don't normally do. Maybe if you're really, really depressed, you it's hard to get up. And normally you're a very chipper person. Normally you're you're out and about. And right now it's hard to go anywhere. And you find yourself wanting to isolate. And, and the depression will do that to you. It's like the sadness is in control. Or if you just received really great news, you're normally a fairly quiet person, but you're like, woohoo, great news. I'm so excited about this. And you're doing things and saying things and operating in a way that you don't normally operate because the happiness is in control, so to speak. And and so I think it's a good illustration of like the spirit being in control. And Piper said in his um, uh, sermons on being spirit-filled, I put it like when we're just captured by the joy of the Lord. Like when we're just overwhelmed by our God and who he is and what he's done, we get this feeling of joy, euphoria. And if you're living just focusing on God, focusing on his goodness, living life love. You feel this control of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's that's the kind of the idea. And there's a whole lot more that I could say. Definitely walk in obedience. Definitely be in prayer. Uh, confess your sin. Live right. Be in the word. All those things are elements of being filled. But really the idea is just, I'm so captured. I'm so caught up in all that God is and all the goodness of God that I just am He's in control. He's driving the ship. And I'm just saying and doing the things that he wants me to do. That's kind of the idea there. All right. So that's the story. That's what happened. It's an explanation, kind of in-depth of uh, baptism versus feeling, uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. But I want to leave with some implications that I think are really important. Implication number one, I would say, is this. We should seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in, in circles where we really didn't like to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. We kind of try to shove the Holy Spirit off in a corner and not really think a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and But all the guys I read, again, uh, they were all saying the same thing and encouraging us to seek what that filling of the Holy Spirit actually means. Uh, I am just feel like I'm on this growth of understanding the Spirit, understanding how He works, Understanding all of that, I can't say no today fully exactly all that means, though I think that John Piper has some really um, uh, 
strong arguments to say it comes and we're just captured by our God. And I just want to live in that. And whatever that means, I want to just live in that more and more. So implication number one, let, let's seek that. Which kind of brings us to this. Implication number two, we should pray for the Holy Spirit. We should pray for the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just not Pastor Jamie's advice. Jesus said this. You probably remember the text where he says, if you, uh, being evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how will your heavenly Father not also give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so it seems to indicate that Jesus said, hey, a great thing to pray for and ask for is the Holy Spirit. And when you do, God the Father will hear that and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. So I think it's a good thing to pray for the Holy Spirit and say, God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Let me know what that's like. You take control of my life. You say things that I would never say and you do things that I would never do, but all for your glory, all in the spirit. Something to think through. And then lastly, if, if, if Piper's right, I think he is, then we should uh, not be afraid to engage our hearts in all-out worship of God, to engage our hearts in all-out worship of God. I, I have a hard time, you know, if you see me in worship, I have a hard time sitting still uh, in the worship service. I hear these truths about who our God is and what he's done, and man, I just engage in worship. And, and uh, that shouldn't just be on a Sunday morning. That should be he, uh, here in my library on uh, you know Tuesday morning when I'm in my devotions and studying God's word uh, personally and I get captured by something amazing about God, I should just engage in all that worship of God. Those things are important. All right, we're talking about what these first witnesses did, kind of taking our cue from them, and we're acknowledging that we were filled. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you: seek out the filling of the Holy Spirit. No, you were baptized and you were saved. That was done, but now you can be filled. And cry out for that, ask God to do that, see what he'll do in your life. Here's the next part of our sentence and the next aspect of being a witness. should be pretty obvious, but being filled with the Holy Spirit, we must bear witness. We must bear witness. And this happens in the next part of our story. Let's pick it up in verse number five. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And um, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak or who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each of us in our own we hear each of us in our own native language? Uh, Perinthians and Medes and Elimelites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah in Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phygra and Palamphia, Egypt and the parts of Libya uh, belong to belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. I mean, really gets into a very detailed list there, doesn't it? It's pretty cool. Uh, verse number 11 now. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. That's cool. Okay, so now what's going on here? Well, this time when they were both baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit gave them utterances, and they spoke those utterances. And what those utterances were, were actually foreign languages that these Galileans could not know. Now, I think one of the reasons why, by the way, uh, this is happening on the day of Pentecost is because this is a, one of those Jewish holidays where everybody gathered back to Jerusalem. Many people made pilgrimages across the globe back to Jerusalem. And so this would be a day where you had many people from many nations gathered together. That's exactly what you see. 
and you have this list, very specific list of all these different people, all these different languages, all these different dialects, and each of them was hearing in their own language, hearing in their own tongue what was what was happening. So there was an incredible miracle that God was bringing about. Now, uh, just to, again, full kind of disclosure, you see a different kind of of tongues that happens later in the book of Corinthians, where it's actually an unknown language that needs an interpreter in the room to tell the things of God. And this is not that kind of tongues. This tongues is one where they are, the spirit is giving them utterances. They're speaking out those utterances, which happens to be the languages of all of these people. Pretty incredible what's happening here. Now, um, it's miraculous. There's no question about it. This is a miracle. And this miracle is amazing, the people that are there. And it's not just this miracle. It's multiple miracles. God works multiple miracles in this. You saw the tongues of fire over their head. You saw the mighty rushing wind that swept through the place. Those are all miraculous things that God has done. And though we could get lost in all the, the tongues and all of that, and you know, the more we go in Acts, we'll address more and more of this. I've kind of already been clear about our stance where we really believe that the primary revelation is completed in the Word of God. Uh, but uh, having said that, I, I don't want to miss the, what I think is actually, actually the point. And the point is it's in verse number 11. And take a look at this again. Here's verse number 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, here it is, underline this in your Bible, the mighty works of God, the mighty works of God. All these things were the mighty works of God, miraculous things that were taking place. I mean, God had gathered. Remember how he told them that you'll be my witnesses and, and to take this to uh, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And imagine being one of those 120 disciples in the upper room. And he just said, hey, take this, be my witnesses, take this message to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're like, how in the world? We're going to get that accomplished. That seems like such an impossible task. And then here's God. On the day of Pentecost, all these people, all these different tongues and nations gathered together, and they do that. And God works miracles. And why was he doing all this? So they would see the mighty works of God. He wanted them to witness both miraculously there in that moment, but also to hear testify from their lips and their own languages this is my God, and this is what he has done. This is our God, and this is what he has done, the mighty works of God. Now, all that to say, that brings us to some really key implications, some really key implications for us. First of all, this. We must bear witness to the mighty works of God. We must bear witness to the mighty works of God. God has done incredible things in your life, incredible things for us. And what we need to do is be witnesses of that, to tell anybody in Fort Wayne Hill will hear, this is our God, and this is what he has done. This is my God, and this is what he has accomplished. In fact, didn't we see that in 1 Peter? Here's 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has called us to be witnesses of his excellencies, to declare his excellencies. So think about this, church. How are you going to do that this week? What are some things that God has done in your life that's absolutely amazing, his amazing works? And then who this week can you tell, hey, I want to tell you what my God has done. I want to tell you what my God has done. And be able to say the greatest work of all, the work of salvation, my God has saved me. And I want everyone to know and tell of the mighty works of God. That's something to consider. 
Here's an implication number two. God will accomplish his work through spirit-filled believers. He said it, right? I'm going to, I want you to get my work done. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to take this message to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then what does he do? He gathers them together for him, <laughs> gives them a good head start and people from all around. This is what our God will do, man. He will do it. God will do it. Say that to, to your neighbor. Say, God will do it. God will do it. I've had to remind myself of that so often in this church planning process. When we first came or were sent to Fort Wayne, I mean, we had no idea. How in the world God would do this? It was just my wife, my kids, and we didn't have a whole lot of help to start out with. And it was a God-sized task. I'm telling you, it was it was nerve-wracking at times. But God did it. He did it. And he got this church planted. It's been a lot of work to sustain a church and to keep a church together who is trying to preach the gospel, trying to be a good witness. But God's done it. It's a God-sized task. And God does God-sized things. He just does. We're facing some things now, even with uh, the building, that have been a little bit difficult. And and trust me, we're we're eager to share once we have the full story and come with a good with a, a report to you of whatever's going to go on there. But we're facing some real hurdles where I'm not sure how we're going to get over them. But I'm not even worried about it because I know my God, and God does God-sized things, and so we trust Him in all those things. And I don't know what you're facing in your life, and maybe you're going through something that you would look at and say, I don't know how we're going to get through this. I don't know how this is going to work. And I just want to reassure you this morning uh, that my God can do God-sized things and he will accomplish the work. Just live filled in the spirit, man. Just seek him out, worship him, love him, trust him, be filled in the spirit, and he will use you to get his job done. But he will do it. And then lastly, I'll say this. God will work miracles to get the job done. God will work miracles to get the job done. That's the last kind of implication of this. God does, has, and he does today do miracles to get his work accomplished. And I believe in the miraculous. I've seen the miraculous. And uh, I'm convinced that God will do the miraculous to be true to his promise to accomplish the work. We're considering what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. First of all, we have talked about how they were filled with the Spirit. And filled with the Spirit, we must bear witness. First kind of two points. Now let's look at this a third one, and that is anticipating the responses. Anticipating the response. And go to verse number 12. Verse number 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So here's that reference I made earlier to how uh, they compare the filling of the Spirit to being drunk, again, a matter of control and losing control, but losing control not to a substance, but to the Holy Spirit. Um, but but here they are, like, like what does this mean? And a couple things that are just important to, to take a look at here. They were all amazed and perplexed. Did you see that? They were all amazed. They couldn't deny this was God at work. This is something incredible. At least they shouldn't have been able to. But, but we know that, that many were amazed. They were all amazed. They were all perplexed. I think the question's interesting where they, they said, what does this mean? What does this mean? Paul Tripp talks about this a lot in his writing, how we as people are meaning makers. In fact, consider this quote by him. He says, we're meaning makers. We want life to make sense to us. This is from one of his blogs and his, on his website. He said, Everyone, everyone is a theologian, whether you're a baker or a painter or a mechanic or an accountant, you're a theologian. Everyone's a philosopher, everyone's an archaeologist, and you'll dig through the mound of your existence to make sense out of your life. That's why a little child will ask 200 times why, or 200 why questions in a row, 
until their parents are ready to go crazy because a child wants to understand his world. He wants to know why things are the way they are. And they were like, what does this mean? What's going on? They're trying to make meaning out of what's happening. But we know what the meaning is. We know what's going on. This was all in preparation for the preaching of the gospel. This was a group of Jews. The scripture says clearly later on that Jews require a sign and Greeks speak uh, seek wisdom. And these are the Jewish people of the day. And to believe this transition from the old to the new, this new covenant that was being enacted here, they needed a miracle. They needed signs. And what they were getting were these signs was all in preparation for what Peter's going to do next. And Adam's going to unpack this next week, Lord willing, that uh, the gospel is going to be preached. And we know 3,000 believed. 3,000 believed. That's incredible. But not all believed. Now, again, watch how many were amazed. They were all amazed. The text says they were all amazed. But take a look then at verse number uh, 13. But others mocking said they are filled with new, new wine. Some were the skeptics and some were the mockers. And they mocked what was going on. It shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples if they remembered when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower and how the, the kingdom of God is like a sower who went and sowed seeds. And we know that some fell on hard ground and it couldn't take root. Some fell on rocky ground. Some fell on ground full of thorns and the thorns choked out the plants. But some, some bore fruit. Some actually took root and bore fruit. But think about that. Of the four that Jesus gave, three of the four rejected. Three of the four rejected. And what we'll see here is though many will believe, there are still some who are seeing these miraculous works of God who, instead of receiving the word, they are mocking. Now, I'm going to talk about some implications already of this, some implications. Church, amazement at the gospel is not the same as belief in the gospel. Amazement at the gospel is not the same as belief in the gospel. Just because someone knows the gospel doesn't mean they believe it. Just because someone is amazed by the gospel doesn't mean that they trust it. Just because someone says they accept it doesn't mean that deep down in their hearts they are they are not some level rejecting the gospel. And if you remember our study of the book of Hebrews, it was very clear. There were many people in that congregation that had heard the gospel and heard the gospel and heard the gospel and they weren't believing it. They were they had tasted, they did all these things, but it wasn't really sinking into them. And you see some really, really stark warnings, including this one here that I'm going to show you in Hebrews chapter 10. So here's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, which says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more how much worse punishment do you think will be delivered by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and was uh, has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now watch, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, an, of, an, of a living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. And here you are this morning and you're in church. Or you're listening online or wherever you are. 
Maybe you've heard the gospel and heard the gospel. Maybe you come every week and you sing the gospel when you, but in your heart of hearts, you know you don't really believe it. There's doubt. There may be even flat out rejection. I don't want you to hear the warning. It is possible to be amazed by the gospel and still reject it. And if that's you, I'm telling you, today is a day to let that barrier break down, to know that Jesus died for your sin and rose again. And you've heard it and you've heard it, but if you've got lingering questions and you've just been afraid to ask, now is the time. You don't want to linger on this. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, get that right. Talk to somebody. Let's get that figured out. So a very important implication. It is possible to be amazed by the gospel and yet still reject it. Amazement in the gospel is not the same as belief in the gospel. Here's implication number two. Many will reject our witness. This is an example we see here. Jesus predicted it in the parable of the sower, and we'll see it too. Some will have hard hearts. Some will have big issues they just can't seem to get over. Some will have the, the cares of the world, the attraction of the world that will come. They'll choke out what little faith that they were was flickering in them. And we just got to remember that. And hear me on this now. This is very important. The joy of sharing the gospel is in the spreading of the gospel, not the reception of the gospel. Yes, we want to see many people receive it, but our responsibility, and we have to make it our joy just to share the message, just to spread the news, just to tell however, however we can, and to trust God with the results. And we see that in Scripture, right, that only God brings the increase, and so we'll trust Him for that. Many will reject their witness, but I want to end with this in terms of this point. We've got one more point left, but some will believe. And some have believed in our church. We have people who are sitting around you right now who have come to know Jesus Christ as a part of our ministry at Redemption. And I believe many more are going to come. We're praying for revival. We're praying for God to save thousands through our ministry. And uh, I'm going to keep on trucking sick and all. I'm going to keep on trucking, believing that God is going to do it through us. And there will be some that will believe in church. We're just getting started. There's so many more that need to hear and we're going to continue to carry the gospel message out. Now, let me get to the last kind of aspect here. This is going to be pretty quick. So um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, we must bear witness, um, understanding their responses. There are going to be some responses, but then last, leading them back to the Word of God. Well, why do you say that? Well, look what Peter does next. So I want you to turn there in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse number 14 now. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Pause for a minute. No, I don't know. It, it feels like the sixth hour of the day. He'd say, I can understand why you're saying they might be drunk. Um, but whatever the case is, don't get drunk. All right, here's verse number 16. Uh, but that is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what happens next is Peter preaches the word. Peter does an exegetical sermon out of the book of Joel, and then he goes to the Psalms, and he preaches the gospel out of the mouth of David in the Psalms. He goes back to the word. And this is a prediction that happens in the book of Joel. We'll keep reading verse number 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And every male servant and female servant in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, that all was uh, at least partially fulfilled 
right here in this text. We see this is the example that's given there in all that was fulfilled. But Bible prophecy is tricky. And whenever you study out Bible prophecy, you'll know that whenever you're reading a text, I mean, this is the first coming. Now, all of a sudden, he switched to the second coming. And, and now he's back to the first coming. And what's going on here? And Bible prophecy is very complex. So some of these things have not actually occurred yet and didn't occur here. But, but what uh, Peter was saying is that this is the beginning this is the beginning of the fulfillment of this. Now, we can get lost in all of that, but what I want to do is point you down to verse number 21. Let your eyes fall on this, verse number 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is Peter doing? And what's the example to us? Well, Peter's going back to the word. He's got these people in front of them. He's got some people who are mocking and they're rejecting. So how does he get through to those people who might reject? He goes to the word. Do you know? The word of God is so very powerful. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharpening two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God can cut right down to the heart. And here's Peter. He's got these people, and they're on the fence. And he says, you know how I'm going to get to them? I'm going to use the word of God. Now, I do this in my um, witness, in my personal witness. I will try to have a Bible with me, and I want to let them actually read the verses. And the argument has been said to me, well, what can I believe the Bible? Well, then what good does it do? Well, imagine this. Imagine if I had a sword, and I got a sword here, and it's a sharp sword. It's a real sword. And uh, and you said, you know what? I don't believe in that sword. I don't believe in that sword. Well, you know how to believe in the sword. It's going to cut you all the same. And that's how... The Word of God is. You don't have to believe in it. To, uh, your disbelief doesn't rob its power. Now, not to say that you don't, for some people, need to find other arguments, need to find other logic, need to find other things. But I'm telling you, the thing that's really going to win them over is going to be when they see the Word of God and the Holy Spirit uses His Word to cut them to the heart. And, and let's just be a church all about the Word and stick with the Word. And in your personal witness, man, it's the Word. All right, church, four aspects. Uh, hopefully this encouragement to you, it's a challenge to you, but four aspects of being a disciple, man. Being filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. We must bear witness, understanding the responses, uh, but leading them back to the Word. And I believe God is going to do great things. Hey, be praying for me, be praying for our staff, and we want all these things to be glorifying to God. I'm actually going to pray for you. Even though I'm praying Saturday afternoon, it's going to be just as effective Sunday morning when you hear it. Let me just pray for us all. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It's just so enjoyable to study and to teach it, even in a format that I didn't plan on teaching this week. It, it's it, The power is not in me. The power is not in my presence. No, the power is in your presence. The power is in your word. And I believe that. And I just pray, Father, that even as folks are sitting there today, they'd be captured again by your word and they would love your word. And that, Lord, there'd be witnesses of that. We need your help, God. We have a city to reach, and we need you to help us do that. So let us live filled with your spirit. Let us bear witness. Let us know we'll have various responses. But let us continue to bring people to your word, and we'll see you do great things. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Redemption Church, thank you so much. You are loved.